God teaching us well, and we'll see that as we move on, uh, because we see a nation that once again is fallen into danger of uh, idol worship, and, um, and it's all as a result of those who have come back from the captivity that have married pagan wives, and the influence of that to the nation once again. So they're going to be told to put away their wives, and that's where it makes it difficult. So, you know, I just pray that tonight that we see that there's a very important spiritual lesson for us in obeying the Lord and um, in repentance and turning back to the Lord when there is sin in our lives. But also I want us to have clarity and understanding as much as we can concerning this text of what was going on. So uh, we want to be attentive tonight, and uh, I just pray, Lord, that you'd help me to give clarity and understanding in this text is a very important portion of scripture that's written for us. And we see the seriousness of sin, what it does to a people, to a nation, to individuals uh, when there's disobedience. And Lord, they were wanting to do what was right uh, according to the word given to them and the commandments that God has given to them and the covenant that God made with them. And Lord, we have a lot that we can learn from. So I do pray that our hearts would be sensitive and that our hearts would be teachable tonight. And we would desire to just hear your voice. And Lord, um, you want us to live that life abundantly that Jesus promised us. And so living that life abundantly comes by hearing your word, by separating ourselves from that which is wrong, which can defile us, can uh, bring sin to us. And Lord, to follow wholeheartedly after you. So we want to have a heart more like Ezra, who was so brokenhearted over sin and what it was doing to a nation. Brokenheartedness, and we see that brokenheartedness. We see the humility. Lord, as, as he comes and, and he is grieving very much and mourning for people that he loves, and what sin is doing in their lives. So may we glean from this and learn from this. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So we know from the book of Ezra that this book has taken place. It begins with uh, the decree made from the first king of the Medes and Persians who had defeated the Babylonians. Cyrus, he says that you guys can go back, the Jews. Your 70 years of captivity had come to an end. And as Jeremiah had prophesied, they would go off for 70 years into that captivity that began under Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians in 605 B.C. So the Medes and the Pers Persians come in. They defeat Babylon. They are the world power. And Cyrus makes a decree in his first year that they can go back and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. So as we saw in the beginning parts of the book of Ezra, that Zerubbabel, the civil leader, and then Joshua, the high priest, would bring about 50,000 people back from the captivity. They would, burn, uh, they would build a, the altar where they would have the burnt offerings and sacrifices and the sin offerings uh, that they would be able to perform. And then they eventually would build the second temple that at that time was called Zerubbabel's temple. So the second temple period begins at that time. And we also know that um, another wave would come back under this man, Ezra. Now, Ezra, as we saw last week, would bring a smaller number, just under 1,500 males. 
So biblical scholars believe that there was probably about 5,000 in totality if you count the women and the children that would come with them and, and they would come back with Ezra and it was Ezra who's a priest and a scribe and they would have gifts, they would have supplies for the temple uh, and it was Artaxerxes that gave that decree for them to go back and, and also would write a letter saying that they would have safe passage and here are, you know, um, the provisions for you to take back to the temple of God and the gifts, and that's what they would do at that time. It is interesting that under the Medo-Persian Empire, that the kings that came on the scene would find favor with the Jews in that it would establish them uh, back into the land. Cyrus, given that decree, you can come back. Darius, uh, Darius and uh, Darius, however you want to say it, he was one that would give the decree that they could continue building the temple. We know that Xerxes, he was the one that uh, is in the story of Esther, and we'll talk about that when we get to the book of Esther, not too long from now, later on this spring. And then Artaxerxes was one that gave the uh, decree that it was Ezra that could come back and they would have the supplies and the gifts for the temple. And then also we'll see in the book of Nehemiah, he gives a very important decree for him to go back and rebuild the walls and rebuild the streets in Jerusalem. So we'll look at that um, in next week when we go into the book of Nehemiah. So here they are, they're back in the land and, and the temple has been built, the sacrifices are being done, and, and outwardly things look really good right now as Ezra, this godly man, comes to Jerusalem with this second wave of captives coming back to be established in Judah and in Jerusalem. But something begins to happen, and let's begin to read that in chapter 9, verse 1. When these things were done, the leaders came to me, saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land with respect to the abominations of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Jebusites and the Ammonites and the Moabites, the Egyptians and the Amorites. Verse 2, For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed is mixed with the peoples of those land. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers have been foremost in this trespass. So as things look good, as the temples built, the sacrifices are being done, uh, Ezra gets settled into Jerusalem, but then he gets a report that some of the people, and even some of the leaders, the priests and the Levites, are involved with marriage to foreign wives. And we know that as the children of Israel, before they came into the promised land, as you read the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy uh, giving the law to that new generation that would go into the promised land. Deuteronomy means the second law. It wasn't that it was a new set of laws, but you recall that the law of God that was given to them at Mount Sinai, that generation died out in the wilderness as they're getting ready to go into the promised land. They needed to be reminded of the law of God. So that's what Deuteronomy is about. It, Deuteronomy takes place in, in about... 30 days time where Moses before his death reminds that new generation of the law of God and in the book of Deuteronomy we read that the Lord says there's not to be mixture there's not to be an ox with a donkey when you plow there's not to be 
linen and wool that's mixed together, um, seeds that are mixed together. There's not to be a mixture, and also when it comes to marriage. And the Lord goes on to say that, that when you go into the promised land, don't intermarry with the Canaanites because they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord would give them a warning that if you follow after the practices of those Canaanite gods and those false gods and follow after them, they're going to be a sore to your eye and a thorn to your side. So the command was given to them very clearly not to do that because it's going to be a problem. And what is going to happen is pagan influences and practices are going to be introduced to the nation. You are separated unto me to be a people that are holy unto me. So we know that later on it would become a problem as we went through First and Second Kings, we went through Second Chronicles, we know that Solomon having 700 wives and 300 concubines, that First Kings chapter 11 tells us that Solomon's heart was turned away to other gods because of his marriage to foreign wives. And it ended up leading the nation into idol worship. So here is Solomon, who was ruling during the nation's greatest prosperity and peace and power. Things were great, but he began to marry all the foreign wives. And what he did, and what is intriguing to me, Solomon, known for the wisdom of God, wasn't very wise in applying the wisdom of God in his own life. And God said the king is not to multiply wives, and he ended up multiplying wives. And you're not to intermarry with the foreign wives because what will happen is, is that they'll lead you away from following me to serve other gods. And that's exactly what happened with Solomon. He was there and burning incense and building altars to those false gods. And idol worship was introduced to the land once again. And we know that his son Rehoboam was affected by that. And as uh, Solomon died and Rehoboam came to the throne, that under the reign of Rehoboam, that the nation split. The ten northern tribes split away from Judah. And they would plunge into idol worship as Jeroboam, the first king of Israel, would build the golden calves in Dan and in Bethel and tell the people not to go to Jerusalem any longer. And then Judah had its troubles. We spent weeks looking at that, the idol worship, the false worship that the people turned to. And Solomon was one that was the catalyst for the people once again to be worshiping those false gods because he married those foreign wives. And they went off into captivity We know the house of Israel by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. And then in 605 B.C., the house of Judah. And now they're back into the land. And God, through his grace and mercy, has brought them back. It has been 80 years since the captivity that God ended. And they're involved in something God warned them not to do. And they're involved with something. This is a big problem. We need to understand it. That it's endangering the nation, that this isn't just a few people doing this, but the leadership is doing this. The Levites and the priests, and there are many, and the people that are back into the land are being reckless with sinning against God in a covenant that he has made with them. So Ezra here, he gets word of it, and what's his response? Well, verse 3, so when I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe and plucked out some of the hair of my own head and beard and sat down astonished. You know, as I read Ezra's response to this, 
we can look at it one of two ways. We can look at it and say, well, Ezra, you know, he, he's kind of fanatical. I mean, really? I mean, he sat down and, and uh, he's pulling out his hair out of his you know, head and his beard. That would hurt, wouldn't it? But we know that as Ezra here tears his clothes and plucks out some of his beard, that it's a sign of deep grief and astonishment that this is happening. We need to understand that this nation has gone through a lot of pain and hurt and devastation and destruction. He's back into a city that the walls are still crumbled, lots of rubble that is laying around. There has been great death and devastation because of their sin and disobedience to God. And God had sent the prophets, you recall, to tell them to turn away from their sin, to turn away from their false worship. You're going to go off into captivity. Don't you remember the covenant I made with you at Mount Sinai there? And so he knows that it's been a fairly short time since they come back, and here they are being reckless once again by sinning this great sin and bringing the nation into danger once again of, of God having to judge them. They have gone through tremendous death. When Babylon came in, and Jeremiah, as you read his book, would talk about, he was one that, that he used signs and, and graphic gestures to tell them, don't rebel, you know, turn away from the Lord, don't rebel against Nebuchadnezzar, and he would take the leaders of Jerusalem overlooking the Gehenna Valley there, and he would take a pot, and he would break it, and he would say that if you rebel against Nebuchadnezzar, this is what's going to happen. There's going to be great devastation and death and destruction that's going to happen, and that's exactly what happened in 586 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar came into Jerusalem. Ezra knows this, and that's why he's grieving. It wasn't that he was just fanatical or, you know, uh, just kind of weird or whatever we might look at this. He knows that the nation is in great danger. And he sees the sin that is going on, and he tears his clothes as a sign of deep grief and astonishment of what is happening. That word astonished means he's appalled by it. It literally means to be stupefied. He's dumbfounded by it. How could we be doing this once again? He was appalled that the nation was plunged into not only with the, the issue of marrying pagan wives, but then it would have the influence of the pagan practices and influence that is coming into the nation once again. He's, he's just absolutely cannot understand it. So he's feeling the pain here, and he expresses it in his grief and tearing his clothes and, and pulling out his beard. That really is something that, that you know, shows a man that is grieving very deeply. So the question that all of us need to ask is, what is our reaction when we know that there's sin? When we see the sins of our nation, when we see sin in the church, sin in our family, and sin in our own lives. Do we understand that it brings hurt and devastation and defeat and despair and, yes, even death, that a whole lot of people get hurt and there's captivity and bondage that happens because of sin? Do we feel that, that grieving 
kind of way that, that Ezra, as I read this, I want to be more like Ezra in response of sin. Whether it's me or whether it's somebody that I love uh, in the family, whether it's somebody I love in the church or this nation that I love very much. And I see how we are plunging ourselves deeper, deeper into sin and sinful kinds of living and ways. And to remember this, that there is one that came along and my sin and your sin was so serious that they plucked out his beard. That as Isaiah the prophet is prophesying about the sufferings of Christ, that he was marred more than any other man. And I gave up my cheeks, as Isaiah would write, prophesying about Jesus, who would pluck out the beard. They would pull out the beard of Jesus in the sufferings that he went through for you and for me. And that's how serious sin is. And so Ezra is a man that understands something very important that I want to understand more of, and that is the seriousness of sin and to have a heart of grieving over sin. So we continue reading in verse 4, Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel assembled to me because of the transgression of those who had been carried away captive, and I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. So Ezra has others that are grieving, joining him, those who trembled at the words of the God of Israel. I, I like that. They, they trembled. That is, they had a reverence for the word of God. They had a reverence for the commandment of God. That God's word is true. Do we have that same kind of reverence for the commands and for the word of God that instructs you and me and how it is that we are to live? Lives of holiness unto him. Paul the Apostle, when he was writing to the Philippian church, he would write how the Lord, the, the ultimate example of humility, and, and came to this world. He'd humbled himself and became a man and was obedient to, to death, to death on a cross, even though he did not consider it robbery to, to be equal with God. God in the person of Jesus Christ coming to this world and becoming a servant who served all, and obedient to the death on the cross. And as Paul is talking about the ultimate example of humility of Jesus Christ as he came to this world, and now he is lifted up to where every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then right after that, Paul the Apostle writes, so you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now Paul is not saying in that that you have to work for your salvation. Because we know that none of us can work for our salvation. And that's one of the important lessons that we're going to be looking at and reading about and being established in once again as we go through the book of Galatians. That you cannot work for your salvation. So he's not saying that you work for your salvation. He says work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What is the apostle telling us there in Philippians chapter 2? He's saying that you and I being a Christian, take it serious. Take it serious. Have reverence for God. This incredible salvation that is so great that you and I have because of what Jesus Christ did in going to the cross and being obedient to the Father and dying for our sins. So work out your salvation with fear and trembling, having a reverence for God, having a reverence for what he has done for us, his gift of salvation provided for us. Oh, 
we should work out our, our salvation with fear and trembling. Lord, this incredible salvation that's a free gift given to me, and I want to live for you and walk with you and love you and live a life that is pleasing to you. You see, this Christianity that we have is not a game that we are to play. It is something that is absolutely incredible that God has provided for us. And the thing to remember for us is that we get one shot in this life to live for Christ. And life goes by pretty quickly, doesn't it? Those of us who are getting older, I just had a birthday last week. They just keep coming faster and faster every single year. And life does go by fast. And what we do for Christ is what's going to last. Because all of us will spend eternity with him who named the name of Jesus Christ. And eternity is a whole lot longer than what we will live on this side of eternity. So what we do for Christ, that's what will last. And we shouldn't take our Christianity and salvation and what God has done for us, grace and mercy that he has given to us, lightly. But Lord, thank you. And your love for me, causing us to live for him. So here's Ezra grieving as we see here, and others begin to grieve with him in verse 5. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fastening, having torn my garment and my robe, I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. And I said, Oh my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. So Ezra's prayer here is kind of interesting, isn't it? It doesn't just start blasting everybody who has married foreign wives. What he does is he actually shows great humility here in identifying with the people corporately. Notice that he says here, For our iniquities. Our guilt has grown up. That's not only a sign, I believe, of humility, but great maturity as well. Daniel would do the same thing. Daniel, do you realize that there are two individuals that the Bible speaks much of that it's recorded of no sin in their life? One is Joseph in the book of Genesis and then Daniel in the book of Daniel. Now, that doesn't mean they didn't sin. Of course they sinned. Everyone who has ever walked on the face of this earth has sinned from Adam on, except for one, and that is Jesus Christ. He's the only one that has lived a perfect life. But as you look at Daniel and read about him in the book of Daniel, he is told uh, to us uh, of him that he had an excellent spirit. He determined in his heart not to defile himself. He was a man of great, great godly integrity and character. That's why I love to study the book of Daniel. Because not only do I see these incredible prophecies that are spoken through Daniel in the visions that he would have and, and interpret, but also we know that Daniel was a godly man, and I learned from that. I want people to look at me and say that he has an excellent spirit, a godly man of integrity and honesty, and has a love for the Lord and a desire to live for the Lord. And we see Joseph was the same way. Not that Joseph was sinless, but there isn't any sin that's recorded of Joseph. And I look at Daniel at the end of the 70 years of captivity as he's praying for the nation in chapter 9, that he prays, he says, that we have sinned, that, that we have forsaken you, Lord. 
that we've done this great transgression against you. So Daniel did the same thing. Again, great humility in his life and maturity in identifying with, you know, his people. And that's what Ezra is doing here. I think sometimes for me, I need to make sure that I check my heart because it's very easy for me to say, well, this group does this and they're this way and point to them and and they're full of sin and they're wrong and this and that rather than when we see the condition of the church today that concerns us what the church you know, can promote or how the church allows sin to come into you know, the church and, and the church, and I mean the church at large, compromising the word of God, compromising the commandments of God to say, Lord, we, how we need to, to repent because we're all part of the body of Christ. And that keeps me humble before the Lord. So here is, uh, you know, Ezra. He, he begins to identify with the nation, but it's interesting in verse 6 to draw attention to that verse again. He says, I too am embarrassed and humiliated. So what is he saying in that? I believe that what Ezra is expressing is that God had pardoned them, shown his grace to them over and over again. And it's like, you know, I feel bad because we keep having to come back to you over and over again. And for this sin of disobedience, and, and we keep coming back, and you keep giving us your mercy and your grace, we should be humiliated. We should be ashamed of ourselves. We can kind of, well, I'll speak for myself, all right? But, you know, there are things that, that we can struggle with or, or shortcomings that we have or, you know, struggles of the flesh. And I know there's been times where I feel like, okay, Lord, here I am coming back to you again about this. The rotten attitudes or whatever it might be has been, you know, a dozen times, and that's just today. And you know how that feeling is? Am I the only one that's ever felt that way? Uh, Lord, here I am again, you know, forgive me. And I am so thankful that we can come to the Lord and ask for forgiveness. But we can feel kind of humiliated, kind of ashamed. Lord, I feel ashamed. I feel bad because, Lord, I'm still struggling with this. Lord, be merciful. So that's what Ezra does. He points to the mercy of God here as we continue reading in verse 7. Since the days of our fathers to this day we have been very guilty. And for our iniquities we are kings and our priests have been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands. To the sword, to captivity, to plunder, and to humiliation as it is this day. And now for a little while grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a pagan in his holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. In verse 9, for we were slaves, yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage, but he extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to revive us, to repair the house of our God, to rebuild its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. In verse 10, and now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land which you are entering to possesses is an unclean land with the uncleanness of the people of the land with their abominations which have filled it from one end to another with their 
impurity. Now therefore do not give our daughters as wives for their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land, and leave it as an inheritance to your children forever. So Ezra points them to number one, the mercy of God. Verse eight, grace has been shown to us. He didn't forsake us. God is merciful. Mercy means not getting what you deserve. He has been merciful to you and to me because what you and I, every single one of us, have deserved is God's judgment and damnation. We have earned that. But because of the mercy of God and what Jesus Christ has done on Calvary's cross to provide forgiveness of sin for our sins and our iniquities and transgressions to be pardoned, we receive great mercy. And we're not going to receive that judgment, even though we deserved it. The merciful God who hasn't forsaken us. And then he points them, second of all, to the word of God to expose their sin. That is something that is very, very important for all of us as Christians to do. That we look to the word of God and the word of God, his commandments and truths that are given to us to expose sin to expose wrong living. And this is what God says. And as I've said this before, that this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. In other words, every commandment and truth that God gives to you and to me as a Christian is an expression of his love for you and for me. He doesn't give it to us to put us in bondage or to be a killjoy or that we won't you know, enjoy life or be satisfied in life. On the contrary, the Lord wants us to be free, not in bondage. He wants us to be truly fulfilled and satisfied, not always thirsty and hungry because we're unfulfilled. Because we're always looking to be fulfilled. And the world will not provide any of that for us. Maybe temporary fulfillment, even as Jesus would say to that woman, Samaritan woman, you drink of this water, you'll thirst again. You drink of the water that I have to give, you'll never thirst again. He was speaking of living water, of course. The Lord desires for us to experience the abundant life and joy and peace and to bless our lives, to be free, to live for Him. That's what it means to live in grace to be free and enjoy life and experience life the way it was meant to be as Christians. So may we never look at it as, you know what, uh, the commandments of God is not that important. It's outdated. You know what really concerns me? And I hope I say this and I hope you understand what I'm saying here. It does concern me as we see our society and our nation and the world that is getting further and further away from you know, the truths of God's word from knowing him as we see that our nation is becoming more immoral, you know, a spiritual decline. And, and I know that those who are unbelievers, those of the world, that they, they will come against us as Christians who proclaim God's truth, who give the commandments of the Lord, who stand on that truth. I understand that. I get that. But what concerns me even more is what we see today, those who are, say that they are Christians, professing Christians, and they will say, how can you judge me? 
when you have the word of God here to clearly give to them and you give it to them because you love them. And if we love others, we will give them the commandments of God. How can you say, Pastor, that being involved sexually with my boyfriend is wrong or with my girlfriend or we're living together? How can you say that's wrong? We love each other. How can you be so judgmental? How can you say that, that this is wrong, homosexuality is wrong? How can you say that? I say that because that is the word of the Lord. And then those who are professing Christians that will say, well, he's just a radical. He's, you know, playing with half a deck. He's intolerable whatever it might be. That's what I worry about, that those who will throw you and I under the bus because we stand on the Word of God. And I think that's what's going to become a big, big problem if we keep heading the direction that we're going spiritually in the church, saying we need to be tolerable. We need to say that that's not wrong. It's outdated. We don't want to judge anyone. We don't want to do that. Listen, if I love people enough and you guys enough i'm going to give you the truth of god's word and we should never have the mindset of what can i do thinking i can do anything that i want and say that i love god jesus said how can you say that you love me and not keep my commandments and have no concern about that but may we be more like ezra that grieves over sin when we read the word of god and we say lord Man, I'm in sin. I've missed the mark. I have been in transgression. I've done wrong. It should grieve us is what it should do because we want to live a life that is pleasing. And Lord, I love you, and I want to do what is right before you. So he points them to the word of God, what the commandments of God is. And we need to let the word of God point out sin in our lives and the lives of others that when you minister to them. And we do it with a hope that they will see that, that this is sin and God wants to forgive you. He wants repentance and for you to be restored into close fellowship once again with the Lord. So as we're here grieving in this prayer, he says in verse 13, And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, since you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us such deliverance as this, should we again break your commandments and join in marriage with the people committing these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you had consumed us so that there would be uh, no remnant or survivor? O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous for we are left as a remnant as is this day. Here we are before you in our guilt, though no one can stand before you because of this. So again, the commandments given, you guys don't intermarry with those who are of the other nations, the, the, those who um, practice, you know, pagan practices and influence. You're not to do that. And also he says that, Lord, are you going to be angry until you have consumed us so there will be no more remnant or survivor? This was a serious matter that was going on. So a powerful prayer out of brokenness of the effects of sin. And again, may we be broken, truly brokenhearted over sin that we commit in the sins of, of, you know, the church, the sins of the nation. Oh, may we be brokenhearted. 
what we were seeing going on in our land and in our nation. That's why I want to have, as I've talked about, and we're kind of scheduling that for, for next month, probably the first, second week in, in April, they just have a time of prayer and fasting to really just seek the Lord for ourselves and as a church to pray for our nation. I know that a lot of you are, I know I am, very concerned for what we're seeing. And what we see is, is and know is evil that we're calling good as a nation and acceptable, promoting it, even celebrating it. Are we brokenhearted over what we see? Not only the immorality, the pornography that's rampant, abortion on demand that continues to kill unborn children. Do we grieve over those things? See a nation that no longer wants to follow after the Lord, doesn't want the Lord in our society spoken of. So here was the brokenness of a of man that that is breaking over the sins of the nation and praying for repentance. And may we pray for repentance so that captivity won't come. And we see the humility before God. You know, one of the things about repentance, it includes humility, doesn't it? It's like the story that Jesus told of the tax collector that went to the temple and he wouldn't even dare look up. And he just smote his breath and he said, Lord, forgive me for I have sinned. You see, if we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9, he's faithful and just to, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I know that I've said this before, but it's important to understand what that word confession means. It means to be in agreement with. We are in agreement with you, God, not making excuses, not trying to explain it away, but it is coming like that humble tax collector who said, forgive me for I am a sinner, not coming in pride well you know what it's not a big deal and it's everybody else's fault the pharisee who came and said i thank you god that i'm not like everybody else but in humility and in confession being in agreement that lord that this is wrong because you say it and because you love me and then confessing and being in agreement and lord help me to turn away from it a nation that needs to repent. Churches, ourselves, and families when there is sin. Remember Nathan came to David concerning Bathsheba, and David would write in Psalm 51, he acknowledges his sin as you read that, that psalm. He says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. That you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. David acknowledging that sin, I have done wrong. And then in verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Just a brokenness of heart, a broken spirit in remorse that, Lord, I have done this. Rather than, ah, no big deal, everybody else does it. Or here's the reason why I do it, but to be brokenhearted over it. 
So as we move into chapter 10, now while Israel was praying and while he was confessing and weeping and bowing down before the house of God, a very large assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel. For the people wept very bitterly as Ezra was praying and confessing. The people are gathering because God was working in bringing conviction and they wept. Oftentimes, conviction will bring weeping. I'll say that again. Oftentimes, conviction will bring weeping. Have you ever experienced that where you just grieved and wept over sin? Whether it was your own sin or the sin of somebody else, it will bring weeping. And another point here is never underestimate the power of prayer from one person. When we have that week of, of prayer, when we have men's prayer on Saturdays, I never underestimate a group of guys, whether it's two guys or ten guys, the power of prayer that can happen as we are given over into prayer. And Ezra, this one man, this godly man that is so concerned about the spiritual condition of the nation and where it's headed and the sin that has been committed is given over to prayer. And, and the power of it. And now it is bringing other people gathering and they have conviction and they're weeping. And verse 2 in Shechaniah, the son of Jael, one of the sons of Elam, spoke up and said to Ezra, We have trespassed against our God and have taken pagan wives from the peoples of the land, yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. There is hope when we sin, isn't it? There is hope, our only hope, the blood of Jesus Christ. He is our hope. He is the one that is faithful as we confess our sins to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is our only hope from sin is Jesus who went to the cross for you and for me to die for our sins. In verse 3, Now therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and those who have been born to them according to the advice of my master and those who trembled at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for this matter is your responsibility. We also are with you. Be of good courage and do it. Now this is where it gets difficult. So now they're told to put away their wives. And we're going to see that they're going to be told to separate from them. But read a lot of commentaries on this. I don't know if any of them were really satisfactory. That why would God tell them to put away their wives? There was a couple commentaries that say, well, they're not really divorcing their wives. They're just putting away the pagan influences and practices. I don't think that's a satisfactory answer. And I'll tell you why. God, to put away all these wives. It's the same phraseology. You remember in Matthew chapter 19. In Matthew chapter 19, the religious leaders came to Jesus and asked them about, is it you know, permissible to, and lawful for man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And Jesus answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce to put her away? According to Deuteronomy chapter 24, if there was uncleanness 
in the spouse, in the wife, then he could grant a certificate of divorce. Here it says, let's make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives. Same phraseology. So I believe that indeed that a certificate of divorce is going to be given here. But here's the key. And I'm doing the best that I can to explain this. They let it be done according to the law. The law given to them in Deuteronomy chapter 24. But here's the thing that I want to make sure that none of you go away thinking that I heard a teaching on Ezra chapter 10 so I can go home and I can divorce my unbelieving spouse. Because that's not what the scripture is telling you to do at all. We know that Jesus, he gave that answer. The definition of marriage is that a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. You see, when you become married in the sight of God, which is a marriage, a holy institution according to Malachi, that it's God's intention that you are one flesh when you do get married. We don't fully understand it, but the Bible declares it. Every time somebody comes in, and they want premarital counseling, I ask them, what is the definition of marriage? And usually they'll get big old eyes and they'll think, hmm. And they'll give, you know, a reasonable answer, but I take them back to Genesis chapter 2. Here's the definition of marriage. Jesus gave it. Have you guys not read that the two shall become one and God's intention is that they shall be married for the rest of their lives. What God has joined together, let not man put asunder. That's God's will. But because of the hardness of your heart, that God allowed a certificate of divorce to be given, is what Jesus said. We know that the Corinthian church was coming out of a lot of immorality and pagan practices Corinth was known for that, a terrible, wicked city. The Christians were wondering, should we separate ourselves physically from our spouse, not given over to them in sexual relationships? Paul says, no, give yourself to your spouse. And if there is a separation in that, the physical relationship, the sexual relationship, it's only for a short season while you give yourselves to prayer and fasting. But otherwise, you are to give yourself to your spouse. And if you are married to an unbelieving spouse, because they are wondering, well, my spouse, I've come out of that paganism. I came out of, you know, the idolatry. Should I divorce my spouse? Paul says, no that you stay married to that unbelieving spouse and you sanctify your children and your spouse. You don't bring salvation, but you sanctify. In other words, you bring blessing. You bring blessing. And who knows, maybe that unbelieving spouse might get saved. You bring blessing to the home. You bring a witness of the Lord to the home. So I want to make that clear as we go through this. That I do believe that it's a certificate of divorce that is being given. This is, everyone loses here. And it's an extreme case where danger is coming to the nation because of the pagan influences and practices. And it sounds pretty harsh because it is harsh. But I also don't want us to miss the spiritual lessons that are here for you and for me. And that is when there needs to be repentance, we can learn from this. And one of them is be of good courage and to do it, first of all. 
And then second of all, as we look at this in verse 5, Ezra arose and made the leaders of the priests and the Levites and all Israel swear an oath that they would do according to this word, so they swore an oath. Then Ezra rose up on before the house of God and went into the chamber of Jehohanan, the son of Eliashib. And when he had come there, he ate no bread and drank no water, for he mourned because of the guilt of those from the captivity. And they issued a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the descendants of the captivity that they must gather at Jerusalem, and that whoever did not come within three days according to the instructions of the leaders and the elders and all his property would be confiscated, and he himself would be separated from the assembly of those from the captivity. So all the men of Judah and Benjamin gathered at Jerusalem within three days. It was the ninth month on the twentieth of the month, and all the people sat in the open square of the house of God, trembling because of this manner and because of heavy rain. And then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have transgressed and have taken pagan wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. Now therefore make confession to the Lord God of your fathers and do his will. Separate yourselves from the people of the land and from the pagan wives. Then all the assembly answered and said with a loud voice, Yes, you have said we so we must do. So here's the thing. A great lesson in when it comes to repentance. And first of all, there needs to be a separation. There needs to be a separation. You remember when we were going through, you know, Second um, Chronicles, that when we saw those kings that brought revival and restoration to the land, oftentimes there was removal. You want revival in your heart, in your life, restoration where you're coming closer to the Lord and closer fellowship with the Lord, a lot of times there needs to be removal. Are those things that are causing you to sin, to compromise, to do that which is contrary to what the Lord wants you to do. Oftentimes there needs to be a separation, doesn't there? It means you quit hanging out in the places that you shouldn't be that's causing you to sin. It means you separate yourself from whatever it is that perhaps that you're pulling up to watch, whether it's the cable TV or whether it's the computer. You separate yourself from that. You separate yourself from what it is that you're looking at, listening to, whatever causes you to sin. There has to be a separation. Flee useful lust. And pursue righteousness. When you separate, you go to something else, and that is the Lord, and you go to Him. You see, it's not just sorrow. There's a difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. You can read 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But sorrow of the world produces death. You see, you can be sorry, but is it godly sorrow that's going to lead to repentance? produces repentance leading to salvation never to be regretted listen when you repent of sin you will never never regret it but worldly sorrow produces death worldly sorrow is where there's no action there's no separation and i think when it comes to repentance verse 11 is a verse that you might want to to note and underline and, and remember first of all there is confession verse 11 when it comes to repentance lord i have done wrong and then you separate yourself you do his will um, 
Second of all, you do his will. And then thirdly, you separate yourself. Those are the steps to repentance. Make confession. Second of all, that you do his will. Lord, this is the way that you want me to live and what you want me to do. And then you separate yourselves as it is told here. And as they do, the nation changed because of confession and repentance. Verse 13, but there are many people. It is the season for heavy rain and we are not able to stand outside nor is this work of one or two days for there are many of us who have transgressed in this manner. And please, verse 14, I think is another uh, important verse to understand what's going on here. Let the leaders of our entire assembly stand and let all those in our cities who have taken pagan wives come in at the appointed time together with the elders and judges of their cities until the fierce wrath of our God is turned away from us in this manner. This isn't just going to be solved in a day or two, but there needs to be judges that are going to judge fairly magistrates for each case. They hear the case. In case that woman that they married, Gentile woman, that she is soft towards the things of the Lord. And they were going to judge each case in this manner and look at it and try to do their best to do it in godly integrity. In a way with sensitivity. In verse 15 only, Jonathan, the son of Ahasel, and Jehazai, the son of Tikva, and opposed this, and Meshulam, and Shabbethai, the Levite, gave them support. And then the descendants of the captivity did so, and Ezra the priest, with certain heads of the father's houses, were set apart for the father's houses, each of them by name. And they sat down on the first day of the tenth month to examine the manor. And on the first day of the first month, they finished questioning all the men who had taken pagan wives. So we see here again, a nation has changed because of confession and repentance and our nation will be changed when that takes place in our lives and in the lives of our nation, the people of our nation. And here we see in verses 18 through the end of the chapter, it's a list of those who had uh, put away their pagan wives that are listed there. And we'll end it there, uh, verse 44. And all these who had taken pagan wives, and some of them had wives by whom they had children. And so, Lord, we come here tonight and we read a... It's a hard passage, but Lord, we can learn from this, certainly and surely from it, that Lord, that you give us principles and commandments and we want to live by them. And Lord, um, Father, I pray that we would have a heart like Ezra that mourns over sin. This was a serious matter at this time in history as it was a matter of the survival of a nation. And Lord, I pray that as we look at this, that we've had some clarity and understanding. And, and Lord, also that we would have conviction. We would understand your heart on this. That it grieves you when there is sin. And Lord, I pray it would grieve us. Father, I pray that all of us would have the understanding that Jesus died for our sins. And if anybody's here tonight or you're listening to this message from live stream or another time, that you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. He loves you so much. He allowed his beard to be plucked out, his body to be broken, his blood shed for the forgiveness of sin for you, for your sins. That's our hope. 
Just as they said here, there's hope for the nation. The hope for you and for me is Jesus Christ went to the cross and died for us. And we're going to go to the communion table here in just a couple minutes. And we're going to be ones that hold the cup and the bread. And remembering the new covenant that we've entered into with Jesus. A covenant of forgiveness and grace and mercy. And Lord, I pray that, um, that we would just be at all 